Well, I know you never thought we would finish Nehemiah. <laughs> Who would have thought it had taken us this long? It's taken us longer to study Nehemiah than it took for Nehemiah to build the walls. <laughs> so anyway, it started this in January. <clears throat> and I want to thank Robert because Robert said, you know, the mandate's still there for 50. And I said, we got to meet. We got to finish this book. Um, the flip side is, if you read chapter 13, well... My wife and my daughter love Hallmark Christmas movies. And my son and I make a beeline for the basement to watch, I don't know, the, the Mandalorian or a Star Wars movie or something just to, to get out of that mess. The, those, those Hallmark movies, oh, you, you know in the first five minutes exactly what's going to happen, right? Well, <clears throat> this book you would... You're thinking, this is another hallmark moment. I mean, we're just moving through. The wall's built. Chapter 12, they're walking around the walls. It's a great celebration. And you get to 13, you go, huh? This can't be. This is, this is a little depressing. And so I want to walk through, because really that's part of the whole theology of the book. <clears throat> if you remember, <laughs> and it's been a while, we talked about the temple is destroyed in 586. So if I was to give you a test... And I wanted multiple choice dates. You'd have to tell me 586 BC, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. If you remember, it was huge, right? There were several deportations uh, and uh, just a horrific time. Eventually, uh, we have the Persians come in. The Persians allow the temple to be rebuilt under Zerubbabel. The temple ain't what she used to be, but she's the temple. And so for that, they're, they're rejoicing. It's not until Herod the Great that that temple will be remodeled and expanded. In fact, making it the largest religious complex in all of ancient world history, which is amazing. 35 acres. He'll expand that sucker. But the temple is finished at this time frame. And then Nehemiah comes on the scene, 445. And it's at this point that uh, they will obviously rebuild the walls. As we mentioned uh, before, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king. Uh, we have coins minted by Artaxerxes. There's plenty of archaeological evidence. This is a historical figure. These, you know, that's what I love about studying the Old Testament and the New uh, and, and relationship to archaeology. It just further solidifies these are real people. These aren't made up stories. They're real places. Um, there is, by the way, there's been some really amazing archaeological finds in the last month in Israel, uh, at least have come to light. I mean, some of this I knew, but it's now being published, but it's exciting. Anyway, uh, we won't go down that road. And so Nehemiah will make the long journey to Jerusalem. And remember, he heard the news that it was in bad shape. And Nehemiah says, I'll step up to the plate, which was a bit gutsy because Artaxerxes could have said, uh, I don't think so. But he allows him to do that. And we mentioned why. Uh, you can go back in the notes. But the theology, I want to highlight again. The sovereign hand of God should not be missed. We're seeing this time and time again in this book. The people of God to remain faithful. And that's the problem here in chapter 13. And God's full restoration of the people has not been realized. You get done reading Nehemiah. And what you're going to see today as we look at 13. Is you go, there needs to be a heart change. All these are band-aids, and we know what the heart change is. That's Christ, and that's what Nehemiah is looking to, not stated specifically or explicitly, but that's where we're looking to go as we move through the book. Well, where we are, these are the walls. 
We looked at this. Chapter 13, I want you to look at verse 6. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read excerpts from it today for time's sake. But I want you to look at 13.6. It says, During all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean that you weren't, you weren't in Jerusalem? That's where you've been, Nehemiah. Well, look what he says. For in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, this is how we know that he's been there uh, for 12 years. Because earlier he told us that he came on the 20th year of Artaxerxes, earlier in the book. He says, uh, I have gone to the king after some time. I've requested leave of the king, that is Artaxerxes, and returned to Jerusalem. So we have a little bit of a gap here. Nehemiah is governor of Judah. That's the province under the Persians for 12 years. He will go away back to uh, Persia. Some scholars think he's made several tracks to Persia during the 12 years. That's possible. But he'll go back to Persia. How long? This, they give us a 425. We really don't know how long he went back. Long enough for these changes to occur in chapter 13. So where we are in chapter 13 is, again, Nehemiah has been governor for 12 years. He goes back to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes now allows Nehemiah to return and we're back in Jerusalem. And that's the storyline and that's where we leave off here. And what we see during this time frame, this period, that gap is, again, we don't know how long, but all those reforms that we saw in chapter 10 and 11 and 12, it's all gone to the wayside. Nehemiah comes back and there are a ton of problems. And you're going, how can this be? <laughs> and so let's look at these because there are several. <clears throat> In chapter three, 13, verses 1 through 3, many scholars believe that uh, this could have been uh, with chapter 12. It's really difficult here. I'm throwing it in to this, this tackling the spiritual problems. It says, on the day the book of Moses was read and the hearing of the people, they found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite may ever enter the assembly of God. Why is that? Well, the text gives us a little insight. It says they are the ones that when the Israelites, remember in the wanderings, they would not provide for them. Uh, the Israelites said, can we pass through here? And the Moabites and Ammonites said, no. Look what their territory is. Here's the king of Moab. Here's the kingdom of Ammon. And the Israelites, when they were coming up out of Egypt, passed, wanted to pass through this region. And they said, no, you won't do that. We're not allowing that. And there was no <clears throat> uh, affection for them. In fact, they tried to curse the Israelites. And consequently, God had it with them and said, they are, they are to be banned from the practices in Israel. Now, the good news is, God still has grace. Because we know one Moabite, the God used, she, she becomes part of Jesus' lineage, who is what, who? Rahab. Ruth. Not, not Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite, but you're correct. Ruth is a Moabite, and she's brought into the Davidic line, into the line of Jesus. So there's grace there. <clears throat> So the first here is a compromising ancestry. And again, the Ammonites and the Moabites, <clears throat> and some say, that's really harsh from God. Let's not forget, for 400 years, they were, they were, the Israelites were in Egypt. God has been so gracious to the Canaanites, to the Moabites, to the Ammonites. His patience has been long-handed 
for these folk. And yet they've refused to repent. And so when time comes, God says, you're going to wipe them out. Yes, you, you have Lot's relationship, and there's some, yeah, there's, there's a whole, uh, you've got the Edomites or the, from Esau. So yeah, there's, there's all direct, indirect relationship uh, to, they're not family per se, but yeah, it's, it's there. Yeah, so compromising ancestry is the first thing we see. The second thing, which is going to blow your mind, is flagrant nepotism. I didn't say flatulence, I said fragrant, flagrant. <laughs> Nor is it fragrant. Uh, and I want you to look at the text. Verse 4 says, But prior to this time, Eliashib, the priest, and he's not just any priest. Now, some scholars argue he's not the same guy later on. He's got to be the same guy. Because look at verse 28. Tell me what kind of priest he is. What's the text tell us in verse 28? He's the high priest. He's the grand poopa. I mean, this is the guy, I mean, he's in charge of everything. And look at this. It says in verse 4, the priest, a relative of Tobiah. You remember that sucker? You should go going boo, hiss. <laughs> Tobiah was one, remember where he's from. Let's look at this. Tobiah is an Ammonite. He was the one who tried to assassinate Nehemiah. He tried to stop the building of the wall. All right. Now look what it says. Had been appointed over the storerooms of the temple of our God. He made for himself a large storeroom where previously they had been keeping the grain offering, the incense, the vessels, along with the tithes of the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, as commanded for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the offering for the priest. Nehemiah leaves, and I can guarantee you this wasn't happening when Nehemiah was governor. He comes back, and what do you see happening? The very temple has been profaned by Tobiah. A storeroom that should have been kept for the provisions for the priest has been used for Tobiah. And if you're going, that's awful. You got it. It's absolutely awful. And watch what Nehemiah does. During this, then jump down, uh, well, Jump down to verse 7. I returned to Jerusalem. I discovered the evil the high priest had done for Tobiah by supplying with the storeroom the courts of the temple of God. I was very upset. Now this is an understatement. Watch what he does. I threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the storeroom. <laughs> uh, this, here we go. And I gave instructions that the storeroom should be fumigated, purified. And I brought back the equipment of the temple of God. I, don't you wonder, where were you keeping that equipment? Why wasn't it being used? I mean, th these are the questions you should be asking, right? Along with the grain offering and the incense. <clears throat> Which means, were, were you even offering up sacrifice? Remember our chart earlier on? <laughs> the temple was destroyed in 586. It's not until 516 that it's rebuilt. And how they have longed for this. And now we're only in the four, whatever, 430s. This thing, about a generation, and this thing's being polluted. What they long to have back, it's being defiled. Human nature. Read Revelation. Revelation even when God is on the throne, Christ sits on a Davidic throne for a thousand years. Humanity is still going to rebel. Why? Because the heart is sinfully wicked. 
who can know it? My wife did her master's at Wright State in counseling. And she said one of the first assignments, when she, or one of the first courses she took was they had to talk about the nature of man. So she said, you know, in fear and trembling, I get up in front of all these people and I say, well, uh, man is evil. And she said, you would have thought I had killed their dog, you know, the way they responded. She said it was awful. <clears throat> the, the irony is the head professor was, well, the professor was the head of the department. And later he hired my wife part-time because he said, anyone with those kind of convictions needs to be teaching here. So, I mean, there is a time to take a stand, but this is contrary to what the world would like to portray, you know? Well, it's your upbringing, it's your culture or whatever. No, no, the heart is evil. And Nehemiah shows it's despicable. And here we have, I mean, this is, this is just terrific. And Nehemiah, he blows a coronary uh, dealing with this. <clears throat> He's not done. Not only do we have the Ammonites and, the, and, and, and Tobiah being ex exhibit A, uh, being into the temple and then the defiling of the temple uh, through relationships, we also see financial neglect. Those storerooms that should have been full because people were tithing and giving to the temple that in indicates that they weren't. And we know this because look at the text. Verse 10, I, Nehemiah, also discovered that the grain offerings for the Levites had, had um, not been provided. And as a result, the Levites and the singers who performed this work had all gone off to their fields. So I re registered a complaint. I hear the priest uh, <laughs> who probably aren't the world's best farmers have had to go farm because they, they got to pay, you know, they got to live. Uh, yesterday, I couldn't get my stupid snowblower to work. I still can't. Uh, our blind is broken in our family room or in our, and, and I said, I've had it. <laughs> I, I don't know these things. I'm just driving me nuts. And so I can imagine some of these priests working in the fields. Ah, uh, I don't know the first thing about the stupid plow, right? But this is what they have to do. Why is the temple of God neglected? Then I gathered them and I reassigned them. I love this. Nehemiah has come back and I mean, he's a bull in a china shop. He's a type A personality, isn't he? We're going to deal with this. <clears throat> and so we see that another problem is the financial neglect. This spills over into the Sabbath, which is so ironic they're making these deals on a, on a Saturday, Sabbath. Money's flowing in, supposedly, and yet they're becoming more and more stingy, uh, which is in, very interesting because it says in verse 12, then I, we had to bring the tithe, right? Let me, and then he says in verse 15, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, right? This is... By the time Jesus comes on the scene, this is a big to-do. Remember, they're all upset because Jesus makes clay and puts it on a guy's eye, and the religious rulers have a holy hissy. Uh, you can't break the Sabbath. There was a whole set of laws about the Sabbath. But at this time frame, it didn't seem to matter. They were bringing heaps of grain and loading them into the docks along with wine, grape, figs, and on it goes the provisions. And I love what Nehemiah does in verse 17. I registered a complaint with the nobles of Judah. 
He uses the legal system. Way to go, Micah, right? And says, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? And then he says, isn't this the way your ancestor acted, causing our God to bring on them and on the city all this misfortune? And now you're causing even more wrath on Israel, profaning the Sabbath like this. He says, listen, this is why we were judged by God and went into exile. So why would you go back and do this? And so he deals with, he gives some guidelines and you can read that in verses 19 through 22. By the way, he closes with a little bit of a prayer that was also seen in verse 14. Look at the prayer in verse 22. Nehemiah says, please remember me, O my God, and have pity on me in keeping with your great love. And it's similar to the prayer in 14, and he's going to pray it again here in a minute, and we'll get to this. So we see the financial neglect, the unobservant Sabbaths. There's the, also the unlawful marriages. And this starts in verse 23. He says, in those days I saw the men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ashdod is the home of what group from long ago? Philistines. Yes, the Philistines. It's part of the five cities. Ashdod. Today it's near the Gaza Strip. <laughs> uh, Ashdod. Is, yeah, still a problem, but we won't go there. But Ashdod is... Uh, you got Ashdod, and, and you've got Ammon, and you got Moab. <clears throat> and it said, half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod and were unable to speak the language of Judah. By the time we get to the New Testament, this is also a problem. Hebrew is not the, the norm. It's not a language that people spoke. That's why the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Intertestament period. And most of your New Testament writers used a Greek Old Testament, not a Hebrew Old Testament. Hebrew was being lost, but we see it being lost here. <clears throat> And so I entered a complaint with them and I expressed a curse on them and I struck some of the men and we'll get to that text in a minute. But he says, listen, you, you are not to be engaged uh, with marriages that are outside the camp. And I mentioned this in your notes there on page two. Remember, this is what the people vowed in chapter 10. In chapter 10... <clears throat> In Nehemiah, the people said, we will not neglect the temple financially. We will observe the Sabbath. We will not marry someone outside the fold. By chapter 13, it's a problem on all fronts. Everything they promised, they have broken. And the, the marriage, you can see why. I mentioned this in your notes. Not to be unlawful married to someone that's not part of the camp because they, their children in particular, are not going to be able to participate in the worship of the Lord. They cannot learn the law effectively. And there's great danger of not passing on tradition. Remember, put yourself in this time frame. 586, they lost nearly everything. They lost the temple. They lost the land. They lost their identity to some level. And this is why synagogues rose during this time frame as well as this is the first occurrence of Pharisees and Sadducees and Jewish writings. Why? Because they're trying to hold on to tradition. 
it's, it's, it's getting lost. And Nehemiah comes along and says, my goodness, do you not remember what has happened to us? Why would you do this? Do you not know the law? Have you not made these promises? And so, I mean, you just, Nehemiah is, he's breaking out in a great rash, right? I mean, there's, there's no doubt. He is really struggling with the people. And then finally, <clears throat> there's defiled priest. And we see this in verses 28 through 30. Um, our dear high priest, he is married <clears throat> or he's related to Sambalat. Remember who Sambalat was? That was the Samaritan governor. He was the one along with Tobiah who tried to destroy Nehemiah and stop the building of the wall. And so Nehemiah says, I purified them of everything. Verse 30, I assigned specific duties to the priests and the Levites and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and also for the first fruits. In other words, he probably fit the bill. He paid for the wood. And then he says, please remember me for good, oh my God. I want us to step back. And in your notes, I have this on page two, just looking at Nehemiah. I want you to see his actions. First of all, when it comes to sin, Nehemiah is decisive. He does not pussyfoot around. There's, it is cancer. And you, what do you do with cancer, right? You deal with it immediately. Chuck Swindoll said he went for the juggler vein on sinful practices and didn't relinquish his grip until the life had been completely squeezed out of them. Nehemiah <clears throat> is, uh, he's not politically correct. <laughs> that, that's what you see in chapter 13. I love my Israeli guide, Avi, when we go, one of the first things he says to our groups is, I just want you to know we're not politically correct in Israel. And I am not politically correct. So, I mean, boom, away he goes making comments about political things that we don't often want to talk about in public. Secondly, <clears throat> Nehemiah condemns sin severely. I love Packard's work, A Passion for Faithfulness. It's a study of Nehemiah. And J.I. Packard says, besetting sins, unhallowed relationships, the self-serving pursuit of pleasure, profit, power, position, unconcerned about pleasing and glorifying God in any pattern of action that in any way undermines obedience to God's written word and fidelity to the Christ of the scriptures has a defiling effect in God's sight of which healthy conscience will be aware. It's so easy, isn't it? To let down our guard to compromise our stand when maybe family are involved <laughs> or, or you're hanging out with the unsaved colleagues just to kind of let things slide. And Nehemiah, absolutely not. He deals with it severely. And we'll talk about the scene here in a minute from chapter 13. Third, he sought a permanent solution. <laughs> he already saw what's happened. Even with 12 years as governor coming back, the problems. He's trying to set some things in motion. Sadly, I will tell Nehemiah, it doesn't work apart from a heart change with Christ. And that's what we see in the next few hundred years in Israel's history. By the time Christ comes on the scene, we got a mess again uh, and shouldn't surprise us. And the other thing I, I want you to see with Nehemiah are these prayers. 
Several times he states in the text, remember me, O Lord. We saw this in chapter 5, but it's seen several times in chapter 13. It's, it's similar to Jesus' words to the Father, isn't it? Uh, longing for the Lord, the Father, to recognize what we have done. And some will say, ah, oh, it seems a little arrogant. You know, look at me. You've written this book. Remember me, O Lord. Look what I've done for you. And, and I love what one scholar states, and it's in your, the bottom of your notes of page two. He says, Nehemiah's prayer springs from love, not self-love, as his tireless zeal for God is testified. To hear God's well done is the most innocent and most cleansing of all ambitions. Furthermore, the plea springs from humility, not self-importance, for it is an appeal for help. In fact, as this commentator points out, God's remembering throughout the Old Testament is a call for God to intervene. So what is Nehemiah doing? He's recognizing, Lord, I I'm just here to serve you. Please honor that. Honor, may your name be glorified. And that's his desire. And prayer accompanies these actions seen in chapter 13. Shouldn't surprise us. This book started with prayer. It ends with prayer. Uh, very significant. Nehemiah is known as a man of prayer. Questions on the summary? Questions on any of this? Yes, Steve. The question is, is Nehemiah governor when he comes back? That is debated. Some will say he still has the position even though he's gone to Susa for a period of time. Others would argue no because he appointed certain people. He has, certainly has authority here. I mean, because uh, he's the one who, who's gone to the leaders and said, you've messed up and I did this. Several times in 13, is, I did this. I mean, you ought to see what he does in chapter 13, verses 19 through 22 with those who break the Sabbath. You know, I mean, he, he puts people on, on the walls to guard. The, he puts the, the priest in charge of guarding the gates so that we don't break the Sabbath. I mean, it's significant. So, yeah, it's a great question. I don't think we know. Some may disagree. Keith? <laughs> there is a lot of similarity here, overlap, Ezra 9 through 10. I struggle because I've read different opinions on both of those. Have you thought through that at all? No, I'm embarrassed to say. <sighs> There's a lot of connections. Um, there does appear to be an overlap. Well, there is an overlap with portions of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and we've seen Ezra's role in chapter 10 in Nehemiah. So we know they're contemporaries. So in Ezra, later, he also will deal with the mixed marriages and all of that 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 entails. So, yeah, I know. I, I, I think originally Ezra and Nehemiah was one book in the Hebrew. Yeah, no doubt. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book in the Old Testament. Um, what did you just say, Keith? It was good. Oh, yeah, it, this was, there's no doubt because Nehemiah addressed it when he first came. Chapter 10, we have the reform, and now we're doing this again, like deja vu from 12, 
uh, 10 to 13. Uh, same issues. They promised all this and now we're hearing it again. And it can't be 25 years. You know, I don't think that it's that long of a time span. Maybe it is, but I doubt it. Yeah. Uh, let me, I got a question for you. How do you justify Nehemiah's actions? Look what he does. I started to read it. I, I didn't want to go any further. <clears throat> I want you to look at verse 25. Look what Nehemiah does. He says, so I entered a complaint. This is the, the mixed marriages. I expressed a curse on them. I struck some of the men and pulled out their hair. And I swore by God, you will not marry. Uh, now, I know that some of you have wanted to do this with uh, your daughter or your son. But uh, th these aren't his daughters. These are not his sons. How do you justify this? I mean, it looks like he's lost his marbles. Right? Uh, what's going on, Nehemiah? Cool. It's pretty significant. It's not very significant. Well, what's at stake? He had to get their attention. He had to get their attention, and the statement here is correct. This is very significant. Remember what he said earlier in chapter 13? These sins that you have done is what created this whole mess. Our deportation. Do you want to go back to 586? Don't you remember what God did? He took out a paddle with holes in it and he spanked us really hard. Why would you go back to this? After all we've been through? Are you nuts? Any other thoughts? I have a few in my notes. But it may be a stretch, but I mean, he reacts like Jesus reacted when he was throwing the money changers out. You are spot on. And... When Jesus threw out the money changers in the temple, he made a whip, right? Which is interesting because the area that the merchants were in is the only place that Gentiles could worship in the temple complex. It's also where the storerooms were. Now, I know it's been renovated, but this whole area, very interesting. There's a lot of parallels here of how Jesus handles the religious I mean, his harshest words are for the group that he's most similar to, and that is the Pharisees. But I mean, he goes after the juggler on the Pharisees. He sure doesn't handle uh, the Samaritan woman like that. Why? Because they should know better. And, and the whole temple issue and all that, that entails. In other words, there is a place for righteous anger. That's what Nehemiah is displaying. Keith, you had a... Yeah, the, the ongoing existence of the people of God. Nehemiah, this is what you're all saying. Nehemiah understands the, the, the seriousness of, of what we're encountering. Yeah, Al. Pray for American Nehemiah. Yeah, I, I read Nehemiah and I look at our country and, and we are not the new Israel. I know that. God does not need the U.S., he has been gracious to us for 200 and some years. Uh, I just pray he's not done. I pray that we need a revival in this land. We need a people to rise up. And it starts with us. I know that. Revival starts here. Um, being in prayer. Asking God to move. Um, my prayer is that he's not giving us what we deserved. <laughs> uh, but that he's using this to maybe woo us back to him. But uh, yeah, uh, 
we have our Molex as well, right? And we call it abortion. Well, Moses, well, he, he can't go to the promised land because Moses blew it. Um, that one was a direct order that God gave him and he blew it. He was disobedient to what God has stated. God has made it very clear they are to be holy. And that's where Nehemiah is stepping into this. Let me show you a few things in the paragraph. You can disagree with me. But I, it's what you've just commented. Nehemiah recognizes that the sin of the Israelites was the very sin that resulted in the Babylonian captivity. You mentioned uh, Jesus cleansing the temple in John 2. He understood that sin is first and foremost an offense against God. In other words, he has a serious or a, a realistic view of sin. There's a quote on the, on the first page by D.A. Carson. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience, faith, delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, a call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost of self-control, call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. I can just hear it. The high priest saying, look, we are very open. Isn't this great that Tobiah, who was once our enemy, is now part of us? Let's help give him some space in the temple. You know, we're liberated. We've got some freedoms here. And Nehemiah says, this is sin. Don't call it anything else. It's sin. Psalm 51. And then secondly, I mentioned in your notes that Nehemiah has sacrificed much for Israel. He's personally paid a huge price. Not only financially, but I mean, he risked his own life to do this. Not only in Persia to leave and come to Jerusalem, but risked his life even in the land in building this, this wall. He's had sleepless nights, I am sure, He's had a, a, probably a couple ulcers in the midst of it all. Uh, well, maybe not. He, he knows how to trust the Lord. But you know what I'm saying. Uh, he had to be frustrated. J.I. Packer states, if we find ourselves the feeling that Nehemiah was judgmental, we need to check to ensure that we're not simply reflecting the prejudice of the corrupt and corrupting culture of which we are part. Amen. And finally, Nehemiah acted according to the law. His strong response, this, this beating of, of the, those who were involved in mixed marriages was a commandment of the Old Testament. They were to be scourged. So he's not doing anything different. Pulling out the hair was a sign of, of sorrow, of, of remorse. He says, let me help you here. So let me give you three things. I know I'm... We want to wrap it up here. Let me give you three things. First of all, we're called to be holy. We've talked about this. Joshua 24, you know, what are you going to do today? Whom will you worship is the call, right? Secondly, we need to be cautious not to let relativism, pluralism, dull our sense to sin. If, if nothing else that we've done uh, in our study here, and as a men's Bible study, you know, my prayer for you all and for, for me is that we have a heightened awareness of sin in our own life first and foremost, mm -hmm. right? In our own life first. 
And then third is, this is my prayer for all of you, is that we need to walk in humility as we seek to glorify God, that he might use us. And I, I know you know this, but turn to Jude. It's the little book before Revelation. And we'll only look at chapter 1. Yeah, and we'll forget chapter 2. Jude 1, 24 and 25. There's only one chapter in Jude if you didn't catch the humor. Um, and as we look at Christmas, this is my prayer for you all. Now, to the one who's able to keep you from falling and to cause you to stand. The Israelites didn't have the glory of knowing Christ his righteousness being reckoned to their account because they have a relationship or we have a relationship with Jesus and, 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 and all that that comes, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we might be sinless. They didn't have that opportunity. We do. And, and we have the one who can keep us from falling to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before his glorious presence. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. It's interesting because Jude only speaks in triads. This is the first time in his book he gives us examples that are in threes. I mean, he's a great uh, seminary student. Uh, everything's in threes, but when he gets here, he goes to four. Glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and for all eternity. Amen. COVID stinks. <laughs> The political scene, it's rotten. Everything seems to be rotten. Not for us as believers. We rest in the one who has the power, the authority, and the might. So that we can give glory to him. Right? So that's my prayer for you all. My prayer is that God would rise up us for his glory and use us. And as Al said, we need some Nehemiahs. And thanks to people like Micah through American Family who are standing in the gap. And many of you all also are doing that, whether directly or indirectly through ministries. Keep it up. Yeah, Paul? And so the, the cross looms, right? You can't have a cradle without a crucifixion. You can't have swaddling cloths, right? Without a Savior dying on a tree. Father, we thank you for your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Lord, our salvation is not anything that we do. I mean, the, the whole point of the Christmas story is that you, God of the universe, had to enter time and space to, to impregnate a virgin to give us your son, the God-man. There is, in other words, there's nothing we could have done. Uh, there's no Christmas gift that would have been, could have brought salvation to us. No church attendance, no doing good deeds. It's through the cross 
And so, Father, we bend our knees. We thank you for our salvation. And unlike the Israelites in Nehemiah 12 and 13, where there's this continual loop, Father, we've been set free from the shackle of sin. It's not a band-aid because according to 2 Corinthians 5, your son's righteousness has been reckoned to our account and we have been set free. Father, we're taking a brief break as a ministry for the men and Father, I pray that you would go before these men. May we stay connected in these months to come and, and look at ways of staying connected. Father, Use them mightily for you. We desperately need Nehemiahs in this country. In homes, in schools, in workplaces. Lord, that God, might, you might use us for your glory. Thank you, Father, for this time of year. And I just pray that uh, give us opportunities, sensitivity to those that we come in contact with to share the one who has hope the one who has peace, something this world desperately needs. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.